Hello, and welcome back to a test audience approved episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinemechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. And today we're reviewing 1992's The Player. We'll jump into five point inspection with Hollyworld, You Sold Me Out, Background, Transitional, and Who Framed David Kaheen. But before we do, let's check in on the shop. Fuck, man, it's about time. What took you so long? Yeah, sorry about that, man. Traffic was a bitch. Uh, did you already order some appetizers? No, everything is super overpriced here. $17 for some damn onion rings? Why are we even eating here? Uh, you know, I got a few ideas for the Hollywood Chop Shop commercial. I feel like we need to go for a more upbeat ending. Uh, I got a few notes here I wanted to run by you. What the hell is this? Uh, I went ahead and got us some waters. It was the only thing that was free. Uh, yeah, this is a red wine glass. I want my water in a in a water glass. Where's the waiter? Listen, forget about the water. Why can't we discuss the commercial back at the shop? Listen, man, all the movers and shakers in town eat here. I heard Bruce Willis was here last week. Right. So why are we eating here? I've got all the ingredients for this $22 grilled cheese back at the shop. Well, see, the thing is, test audiences are saying that they're, they're kind of bored with every one of our openings taking place in the shop. They want to see more locations. Test audiences? We haven't even shot the commercial yet. No, not for the commercial, for the podcast. The podcast? What are you talking about? The fucking waiter just looked right at me. Hey, excuse me, garçon. You know what? If I wanted a crash course in Hollywood, I'd just review the player, which we're actually going to do next. Oh, this isn't even San Pellegrino. A studio exec with his job on the line starts to receive death threats from a passed over pitch, but narrowing down the list of suspects won't be easy when you average over 120 a day. In addition to discovering his anonymous intimidator, Griffin Mill must navigate the dog-eat-dog -dog world of Hollywood while avoiding a police investigation after a writer's body is found. Can Griffin survive the pressures of Tinseltown, or will the test audience find a different ending for him? All right, Travis, before we jump into five points, I would love to know your quick diagnostic of 1992's The Player. I normally like to keep it close to the vest. I think it's going to be difficult for me to do this time around. I really enjoyed this movie. Um, more so by the fact that it feels so uh, prescient as far as what was happening in Hollywood in, in 92 when this was made has just accelerated tenfold since this movie came out. So I guess it wasn't hard to see where the industry was going, but this movie nailed it. Uh, I thought it was incredibly fun. Well, I won't say incredibly funny. It wasn't laugh out loud funny, um, but I was smiling ear to ear for most of the movie. Um, I don't know how much time we'll get into Tim Robbins. Normally, I don't enjoy him much. This is the favorite I've ever seen. This is the best I've seen Tim Robbins. I don't know about you. Well, except for World of Worlds. Oh, yeah. The deranged lunatic in the basement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, th this to me is the best satire of Hollywood I've seen. Um I don't know if you watched Entourage back in the day. This feels like what Entourage thought it could be uh, and never was, but this movie nailed that. What about you? Uh, I totally agree. I, 
to to your point, I, in terms of comedy, I didn't laugh out loud a whole lot. I think you know, in Shakespearean comedy versus tragedy, it definitely falls into the comedy category, and I did very much enjoy the movie. Um, I know with it being labeled comedy, it was one of those like you always. I hate when somebody gets labels a movie comedy because if I don't laugh, I feel like it was mislabeled. Um, but again, comedy is one of those. It's super super subjective. Um, not to say I did not thoroughly enjoy this movie. I think there are a few pieces of it that I thought were definitely weaker pieces, but I mean, I guess that's any movie. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, not not to to spoil the very end of you know our final final says here, but I definitely enjoyed the movie. I, I thought it was a, a fun ride from beginning to end. I mean, the opening shot to me, I th- <laughs> not to play off of them, like. You know, it's incredibly meta, and at some point during the opening shot, they're like, you know, the opening shot of such and such movie basically set up the whole movie, and like, in very much way, in a very similar way, I felt like this movie did. Like, it's basically a single seven-minute shot, um, opens the movie, and you're like, it's just gorgeous the way the transitions happen. And the thing is, it's like, it's not like they they you know blew their load in the first seven minutes of the movie, and then after that, it just goes downhill. I don't think they use that same like seven minute consecutive shot again throughout the movie, but I do. They're so, and we'll get into this with five points. So I don't want to steal too much here. Uh, or maybe this is just a great transition into the transition five points, but there's so many just fantastic transitions in this movie. Like it's just, it's fun to watch. And this, I'll say this, this is, so here's, you know, a uh, f- formal announcement here. We are jumping into five points. We'll start with transition. Um, the way they do transitions in this movie, it makes the, it makes the movie feel lived in. I don't know if you felt the same way, but like there's moments where like it starts with a conversation in the foreground and then it slowly transitions to the conversation in the background. And then when the scene ends, it transitions back to the conversation in the foreground. And like to me, it just it makes it's not just set in Hollywood. It actually feels like you're living in in this space. And I thought it was just beautifully done throughout the movie. Yeah, you mentioned when you you hate when things are labeled comedies because if you're not splitting at the sides, you feel like, well, hey, I guess I don't appreciate the movie. I, this feels like one of my other favorite kind of kind of subgenres, which is slice of life. It just happens to be that this is a Hollywood life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the way that it's shot, you know, down to that seven minute opening, the whole runtime. Yeah, everything feels I know I use this a lot to describe characters. But this whole movie feels lived in. Um, mm-hmm. The specific scene that I'm thinking about as far as transition is uh, when we see Burt Reynolds in the movie. You mm-hmm. think Griffin kind of walks past him. We pick up a little bit of his conversation. And then Griffin goes on. That's the the water scene that I referenced in the opening. <laughs> and then as that scene ends, he walks back by Burt Reynolds. And that conversation is still going on. And you don't quite know exactly what they're talking about. But it feels like you do. It feels like an everyday conversation. And I think, you know, I don't know if this perfectly relates, but none of the cameos were scripted. That was all ad lib. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that can go wrong, but it works perfectly with both the way this movie is shot and being able to hear the conversations. Well, I think that goes to the director handpicked all because the cameos were not in the original script. He handpicked all of the actors he wanted and actresses he wanted to be and do cameos. And I feel like that's he had that relationship and knew he could depend on them to deliver that kind of a performance where he didn't have to give them a line. He's like, listen, this is the environment you're in. Almost act natural. You know, <laughs> it's just, it was essentially the direction that was given. Um, I did think in terms of the cameos, the the most the strangest meta reference they do in the whole fucking movie to me 
is at the beginning when they're talking about I love Whoopi Goldberg and they're talking about a Whoopi a movie for Whoopi Goldberg and then Whoopi Goldberg is a character in the movie but she's not playing herself she's playing a detective and I'm just like why like this is such a weird way to do this like of all why would you decide to name her off if you're gonna put her in the movie unless it's just a wink at the audience like listen we are really like diving into Hollywood right now like to the point where we're going to name an actress and then have the actress in the movie playing a different character. <laughs> yeah, and also it's sometimes weird because uh, Sidney Pollack uh, plays Griffin's lawyer. And for a, a, a single moment, I knew that he had a lawyer. I knew he was going to the party. But when he gets there, I'm like, is this Sidney Pollack? Or is this Sidney Pollack playing his lawyer? It turns out it's his lawyer. So it's kind of another fun element of the movie is when somebody famous pops up, you have to take a quick second, you know, is this Nick Nolte or is this Nick Nolte playing someone? Most often it's them playing themselves. Yeah. Um, but not only that, and this will, we'll just kind of jump right into background because a lot of the transitions in the background kind of like go hand in hand, but I felt like they were specific enough worth bringing up individually. Um, I love the use of, again, transitioning either at the beginning or the end of the scene where they would use elements in the background as almost a narrator to the story, which I thought was really unique because I typically don't like a lot of movies where you have a narrator because I think it's lazy. And it's like, it's when you can't tell the story correctly, so you decide to throw a narrator in there to throw exposition or like explain something because the actions of the characters aren't actually relaying it appropriately. But like... The, the one that sticks out, you know, there's a lot of the ones who are like, oh, a murder most foul or something like that. I, I had notes of what a lot of the posters were, but the one that stuck out to the most is is basically when when Griffin gets called out for basically cheating on his his girlfriend and it the pan she walks off and it pants to the poster and it's like the the worst crime of all or something like that is basically what he did to her and i'm like i thought it was a beautiful way of like using these hollywood posters as basically a narrator without actually having a narrator it's like yeah i got that from the scene i didn't need the narrator to tell me but it was another just addition like oh no look it's all around you like again and it goes back to that whole space is being lived in and like there's so much thought into everything that's been put into this film and it's just again those details I think are just so beautiful and like you, you pick up on them and it just, it makes you that much more engaged in the film. hundred percent agree. And to your point, um, the, the, uh, the guy who's threatening Griffin, the, the postcards that he sends are always very topical. Uh, I like some of the ways they shot the transition and then, you know, jumping towards the end of the movie when he's at the screening, um, well, not the end of the movie, but uh, somewhere in the middle of the second act. And he wants him to meet him at the patio. He uses a character from Sunset Boulevard mm -hmm. uh, that directly ties into Griffin's situation. So which makes perfect sense, because if it's a screenwriter that's after you, mm -hmm. of course, he's going to have a deep knowledge of cinema. So, yeah, every single detail of this movie is perfect. Yeah, it is. And I don't know, it goes back into, I, I hate to say this when we say, like, I love this movie, like, what I recommend it, again, not to, to put the, the cart in front of the horse here and, and spoil the end, but I'm like, to me, it's almost an endgame situation, uh, Marvel's endgame, where a lot of what I loved about endgame was payoffs for watching a decade's worth of Marvel movies, and I wonder if this movie falls into the same thing, where, like, I enjoyed this movie so much because there's so many kind of winks and nods and, like, references to Hollywood and other movies and actors and actresses and producers and stuff like that, where it's like, oh, I get all of the references they're making, so I'm really enjoying this movie. Or 
and or is that a deeper way? Is it already a really good movie? And then like, oh, if you have all of that knowledge and you are kind of, you know, just you love cinema, you just get a little bit more out of it, you know? Well, before I address that part, let me tell you, Robert Altman, the director of this movie, God bless his soul, uh, would absolutely hate you for comparing his work to the Avengers <laughs> because it's pretty clear to me, even if you don't have a lot of knowledge of Altman's career, uh, he is not a fan of the direction that Hollywood was going as, in terms mm. of blockbusters and sequels. Yeah. So, yeah, I, God rest his soul. He's spinning in his grave a little bit if he's if he's getting this podcast in heaven. Listen, um, the point isn't the blockbuster aspect. It's a is there the references that I you know that you get that makes the movie like I don't like you put those reference. words in my mouth. You stop that. You stop putting those words in my mouth. You son of a bitch, Robert. Wherever you are, I apologize. <laughs> Um, but no, and this was going to, again, not to put the cart in front of the horse. This is going to be something I, I talk about at the end when we overall recommend this movie. But this movie was made for, you know, cinephiles or just people who enjoy to keep keep up with kind of the meta-ness of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you read Daily Variety, I feel like you're a pig in shit watching this movie. So I can't imagine if you're actually in the business Mm -hmm. How many end jokes even that maybe we didn't get. Um, but yeah, if you're a fan of the industry, there, there's more to love here. Absolutely. So, I mean, that was most of what I wanted to talk about in terms of transition and background was, was again, just the, the beautiful details of how this movie is shot and just being able to, I love, we talked about this in our, our you know, um, Leon, the professional review. Like I love when there's elements in the background of movie that add context or add layers to it that you don't necessarily need to see it to enjoy it. But the fact that it's there, like if you do notice it, it's just, it's, it's a fun, it's an Easter egg before Easter eggs were things, you know, like it's just enjoyable to, to catch that stuff and, and gives you some warm and fuzzies. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, what what five point did you want to move to next? Uh, I mean, at this point, we have three left. We have Holly World, You Sold Me Out, and Who Framed David Kahane. I think we should hold You Sold Me Out for the end. So uh, which of the other two do you prefer to go to next? Well, since we're already on the topic of Hollywood and being in the industry, again, some of this movie just feels uh, prophetic in a way. Um, I loved the exchange between Larry and Griffin. Uh, when Larry is basically saying, hey, we don't need writers for movies anymore. Just just pick up a newspaper. Boom, I've got your pitch right here. Yeah. And literally, it's one of those moments where Griffin, played by Tim Robbins, kind of says the exact same thing that I was thinking as a retort. Uh, and I, I've got it down here verbatim. He says, I, I was just thinking what an interesting concept it is to eliminate the writer from the artistic process. If we could just get rid of these actors and directors, maybe we've got something here. <laughs> and maybe not to that extreme level, but I feel like those conversations are going on in Hollywood right now. It's like, hey, why do we need a top flight director or top flight writer? You know, we've got 70 years of comic books to build off of. This shit writes itself. Mm -hmm. So... As funny as that line was, again, it's not laugh out loud funny. It's just, oh, holy shit, we, we've pretty much arrived there now. Yes. <laughs> no. Like if you're yeah. any sort of artist as a director, you make your one big indie movie and then they pluck you to do IP movies for the rest of the time. You know, I'm thinking of like Colin Trevorrow, you know, goes outside the box, makes a, a crazy time travel movie. Well, hey, that stuff's over now. Time to work on <laughs> Jurassic Park 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, Jurassic World. All right, don't you don't you dare 
you know, bring Jurassic Park's name into this. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's not exactly a sequel. It's not exactly a reboot. You know? Yeah, it's it's a requel. <laughs> oh God, Ugh. God, I'm making um, up terms here. But then another one again that just feels like eerily prophetic is, you know, Griffin's talking to June and about uh, David Cahagan's script. And uh, he says it lacks certain elements that we need to market a film successfully. And she asked him what elements <laughs> suspense, laughter, violence, hope, heart, nudity, sex, happy endings, mainly happy endings. Uh, what about reality? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I also had that written down here uh, <laughs> for different reasons. But uh, yeah, no, I thought that that was that was definitely one of my favorite quotes, exchanges, whatever you want to put it into the whole movie. It was it towards the end when it's just like, what a, what about reality? Like, so. Um, yeah, uh, I think it'll be interesting, though, not to jump too far ahead. But uh, when we do the wrap up for this trilogy, it, it's going to be very interesting to talk about how Hollywood is depicted across these three movies. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, we talk about, you know, clearly they were taking shots at the executives and the producers and the idea that, like, everything has to make this amount of money, like, and taking the artistic, you know, the the, the irony of Griffin's speech um, when they're at the, like, award ceremony or whatever it is, and he's talking about how, like, you know, cinema is art and, like, we have to keep the art in it and all that. And it's like, and well, at the same time saying he listens to all these pitches and, like, you know, his, uh, his, uh, studio is actively looking at ways to basically bastardize and streamline it to where they can just generate as much profit as humanly possible. Yeah, the now more than ever campaign. Yeah. I, I also find it interesting that Griffin has no ability to really greenlight a movie. He just has the ability to say no to a movie. <laughs> Ultimately, he's just <laughs> the middleman. But for a a struggling writer, Griffin is basically God. He is the the gatekeeper to see if you go any further and become what one of the the twelve scripts that the studio selects. That's one thing that I thought was interesting about this movie is like they depict him as like you know he's like I know I can be a little hard sometimes or I can be an asshole and stuff like that or you know even Burt Reynolds' comedy goes asshole and he's like I I don't you know they basically make those kinds of people. And I'm like I didn't think. From a professional standpoint, now from a personal standpoint, yes, he was a total piece of shit human being. But from a professional standpoint, I didn't feel like they ever showed him just like step all over a writer or make them feel inadequate or like they were garbage. It was basically just he would ghost people like, nope, this doesn't this isn't going to work. So I'm just like, we're not going to contact you anymore. So I just felt like if they were trying to portray him as kind of being this kind of tough asshole or, you know, tough love type situation type, you know, where you know, you could see somebody would want to, to take revenge on him. I just didn't think that they did a, a solid job of dis displaying him as that kind of a person in the professional standpoint. Because the beginning of the movie opens with him just listening to pitches. And at no point, like, it seems like every time he's being given a pitch, he's trying to talk it up and figure it out. And like, oh, yeah, this sounds like great. So aside from the fact that he seems to say yes to a lot of things that get denied, there's no real point where he's just like, you know... Even with Kahane, you know, you find out like, oh, the reason, you know, his whole thing, like what his script lacked for it to be produced, like that's never a conversation he, you see him or it is implied that he has with Kahane, where he, he talks to him like, yeah, your movie just lacks what we're looking for. You know, it's so I just I did think that that was a little weak that they they could have done, I think, a better job of ex like displaying why 
a writer would disdain him aside from the fact of just not taking his, their idea? Um, well, I thought there was the one scene when he's trying to figure out who might be sending the postcards and he's going through his files. You can see uh, like a written call log or a typed call log of all the times David Kahane has called and about 15 calls in a row, it just says, we'll call back, we'll call back. So mm -hmm. I don't find Griffin to be like a mustache twirling bad guy. It's just he is so only concerned about his own motivations. But then again, if you're the vice president of a studio and you're seeing 50,000 scripts a year, yeah, I don't think it necessarily makes him a bad guy for not returning phone calls, but... I can see as the writer, you know, if it's your dream project and you think it's going places and this guy mm -hmm. won't even give you the time of day, I can see both sides. So to me, that's almost a strength of the movie is that nobody is outright evil. There's just a lot of selfish people in Hollywood. Mm hmm. Yep. A lot of self-interest. Uh, did you have more that you wanted to dive into with Hollyworld? Uh, no, I, th I think we pretty much covered it. I I'm sure at some point we'll we'll talk about the the habeas corpus, uh, the the fake movie within this movie. Um, <laughs> I definitely have some notes about it in my uh, my time capsule, uh, so we can save it there. So yeah, I think I'm good on Hollyworld. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, and talk about who framed David Kahin, and then we'll we'll you know go into you sold me out slash kind of the uh, the meta meter there at the end to round out five points. So. Who Framed David Kahin was a Who Framed Roger Rabbit reference. I'm not sure if anybody got that. I think it was kind of a deep cut. I think I was being a little more uh, clever to myself than I thought. Um, but at the end of the day, um, what I, you know, as much praise as we're giving this movie, I do think the weakest part of this movie is the kind of film noir-esque aspect of it with him like, oh, he killed, like him discovering who the postcard person is and or trying to and then killing the person and then trying to evade the police. To me, it's almost like just a weird vehicle to show that like, oh, he's this top level exec and he gets away with everything. I just didn't think that that was a very strong, and I don't know if it was just so that they could do a meet cute with the with the girlfriend. Um, what is it? Goodman's Goodman's daughter. But I just thought it was the weakest part of the movies. Like it's almost to the point where I'm like, it was detrimental because it they wrap it up so haphazardly. This is the thing. So I hate to say this, but like I'll watch a time. I knew the movie was about two hours and ten minutes long. When I'm looking at the clock and I know there's only 15 minutes late, I'm like, oh shit, we're gonna find out that Goodman's daughter is like, was it June? She's gonna gonna wind up being the postcard person. Like, what a fucking twist this is gonna be. Cause we only have 15 minutes left in the middle of fucking desert nowhere. Like no one followed them out. Like, well, how's this gonna happen? It's like no, that's not it. And then we just kind of resolve it in the last 30 seconds of the movie. And I'm like, if it was that unimportant that that's how we're going to like resolve that, I just feel like, I don't know. I don't know. I can't come up with a better way of for that vessel to, to get where you're at. I just thought it was to add this kind of weird film noir aspect I thought was the weakest portion of the film. Like all of the Hollywood aspects and seeing behind, you know, kind of behind the curtain how things operate was very interesting and awesome. I just... Again, the whole investigating David Kahin and then his paranoia of being caught by the police, I just I thought it was the weakest portion of the film. So I'll agree with you that it was the weakest portion of the film, but I I don't take that as a slam just because everything else is so strong. But mm -hmm. do you not also give the movie some credit for and and this might 
bleed into you sold out. I don't know. Um, but do you not give the movie credit for the fact that you're basically complaining that they kind of rushed the third act and just made a happy ending and everything ended neatly. But that's that's kind of a meta commentary in of itself, don't you think? Yes, and now we're just going to go ahead and merge who framed David Kahin into You Sold Me Out and just kind of, I think, talk about the two as they overlap. So, yes, I definitely, like, this, this is my question, was was the ending the ending, or was the ending a meta rewrite to show how Hollywood would change this man's story? Because we have the thing earlier when he's in the hot tub and he has to be like, oh, if you were writing a story, how long would it, you know, would somebody go before they became dangerous if they had if they had a resentment or something like that? Oh, through oh, five months, five months. And that's how he goes back to the five months. So it's like we're already in the space where like, oh, his life is a story that's being written with test audiences. And I'm like, okay, so is this a meta thing where like if I'm really going to dive into the movie, this isn't actually how his story ended. But as it's being told through Hollywood, this is how it has to end for the test audiences. And I just thought it was an interesting concept like, well, Maybe this isn't actually how the story ends, but again, the whole meta commentary, like in order for it to be made, we had to change how it ended and he gets his happy ending. Uh, let me make sure that I follow you. Are you saying that the movie itself, like no meta, like this Robert Altman, the movie that he produced, are you saying that the end was changed to make it a happy ending, or are you saying within the film they're making a commentary on that? Does that make sense? Within what I'm the film, within the film, I think that gotcha. that was the original ending of the movie. But I it was the original ending of the movie supposed to be like a wink, like this isn't actually how it ended, wink, because this is a Hollywood movie. So especially with having the screening of the uh, habeas corpus right before it, I was like, oh, this is like a nod at the fact that like, oh, habeas corpus was supposed to end a certain way, but it changed. And then they immediately go into and even use the same line, traffic was a bitch. I'm like, okay, is this again a nod at the audience? Like, actually, again, what about reality? If this is reality, this is not, you would not have one year later and his life was perfect. He would not have walked out of that police station a free man. And again, it is this, again, wink to the audience like this isn't reality like this isn't how this would have happened but hollywood decides to basically polish everything into a beautiful gemstone even when it's not yeah i i agree that that's a hundred percent the case um and for me because it's intentional it doesn't lessen the end of the movie at no, all for not me. at all no, and, and that's the thing is, and when i put it through that perspective or that lens i'm like it's kind of genius the way they choose i still I'm a little frustrated with how they solve the whole postcard thing. And again, I don't know if that was a whole meta commentary about like, oh, just kind of shoehorn in the ending. Because even at that point, do you know who was the voice over the phone? Uh, I did not naturally know watching the movie, but I, I do know through research. Yes. OK, so for anybody who hasn't done the research and watched the movie and all that, um, it was Phil. And it was one of those things like when I watched the guy the movie, giving the eulogy at, at yes. the funeral. As I say, it's like when I watched the movie, I suspected that Phil might be involved with something with how he starts the eulogy, but he never comes back up in the movie. You never see his picture again. That's basically the only thing that he was a cohort of Kahin. Um, and then at the end, it is his voice over the phone and it is confirmed, I guess, in the Criterion Collection or um, in, a, in a commentary that Phil was the one producing the postcards. Um and it's like, okay, I, I get that. Like, that makes sense to me that maybe him and Kahin would have been in cahoots. Kahin and cahoots. 
just wanted to say that if I'm honest. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't make to me a one to one because then why didn't why didn't Griffin find him in his book too? You know, unless they wrote that the Japanese uh, what is it U American but the Tokyo Drift script um, if that was uh, what they proposed together if they worked on it together. I love that you called it the Tokyo Drift script. An I, American I, student in me, Japan? No, no, no. It, it took me a second to realize, <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. Um, well, I don't think... I, I think the point is he only finds Kahane because his girlfriend picks an arbitrary amount of months and that's what he goes to look for. I think the point is it was completely random. I don't think that... I'm sorry, what did you say Kahane's friend's name? Phil? Phil. Phil, I don't think Phil had any grand designs necessarily about like, I don't think he wanted David Kahane to get killed. Mm -hmm. I think once he realized that Kahane was killed, he's like, ooh, now I've got even more leverage that I'll eventually use by the end of the movie. And again, I, I can't take credit for noticing this myself, but apparently when he's delivering the eulogy, He's dressed in the same exact clothing that Kahane was on the night he was killed, uh, like a red button down shirt, jeans. Uh, there was there was some other little detail that I guess was trying to give you a little bit more of a, hey, if you go back and watch it, it makes a little more sense. Mm -hmm. So, again, I, I respect the intentionality of that. So and this is my thing is, again, getting a little too meta into the whole thing, the whole opening sequence, which, again, I will echo from the, earlier in this episode. I loved the opening sequence, so this is not me criticizing it heavily or anything like that, but when they keep talking about, like, oh, it sets up the whole movie, I was expecting whoever the the who was throwing the postcards or making the threats was going to have appeared in that seven-minute stretch of film, that they were setting it up. At one point, I actually had a note, the gardener, because I was like, oh, it's going to be like some weird, obscure person who he winds up sliding. And then I was really expecting there to be the switcheroo. I was like, oh, it wasn't actually a writer at all. It was like some asshole who said, like, I should put roses in the bushes. And Griffin was like, that's a fucking stupid idea. And, like, that's what got shot down. So it was like a complete, like, again bait and switch where it's like the whole time you're thinking it's a writer and then like oh actually in reality griffin was just an asshole to somebody else and they they were going after him because they knew he was a hollywood executive yeah and there's even uh in that seven minute opening there's a writer who has gotten on the studio lot mm -hmm. that shouldn't have been there so i never really thought about that but yeah there's so much going on in that opening scene you know so many characters moving in and out of frame there would be no harm. There's only benefit. And even if, uh, you know, Phil is kind of just somewhere in the background and doesn't necessarily have a speaking part, use that seven minute intro as more than just a setup of the world and a slick camera setup. You could kill three birds with one stone mm -hmm. instead of two. So, yeah, that does feel like a little bit of a missed opportunity uh, in a movie that rarely misses any. Right, and that's the exact point. Like, it was a missed opportunity. It's not a flub or anything. like. It's just like I would have loved to have seen that with you making that kind of commentary, both verbally and going through the whole scene, like you would have set up Phil with someone or being, even if it was like a weird thing where like in the background, like you said, you're seeing Phil escorted off the campus by security or something like that. Um, or Phil is, 
you see kind of if you go back and watch it, you watch Phil put the postcard into the mailman, the mailboy's like stack of mail or something like that. It's like, oh shit, he was there the whole time. Like, fuck, I just didn't realize it. Like, where it is one of those movies, like, oh, you go back and watch it the second, third time, almost like a sixth sense, where you go back and watch it. Like, you have so much more perspective when you're watching it that you catch so many more different details. Yeah, it's an extremely rewatchable movie, it yeah. feels like, because of all the details. But again, missed opportunity to add yet another layer to that. Um, so yeah, I, I never would have thought of that on my own, but now that you bring it up, that's always something I'm going to think about. And Hey, next time I watch it, maybe in that seven minute intro, I'll try to look for Phil just in the off chance that he's there. I can't <laughs> say for certain that he's not, but none of my research led me to believe that he was. Yeah. The The only other complaint I had, and again, this is being nitpicky at this point of the first seven minutes is I wish they had not done an opening credits over it. Like at a certain point, I thought the names popping up on the screen were almost distracting because I wanted to focus more on the dialogue and how the characters were interacting. That when a giant pink name popped up, I was like, "Get the get that the fuck out of here!" Like I don't why this why is this here? Get it out of here. <laughs> yeah, and you know the only reason I'll push back on that is because again, this is a movie about movie making. Mm -hmm. You know, the opening credits, especially, you know, older cinema, that was a very important part of the movie. So yeah, I I could play devil's advocate either way on that. Yeah. I could see if there was an intention behind it, but it was still one of those I think again that is a more of a love letter to I just loved how the first seven minutes was shot. I wish there was fewer distractions. Like I wish I could have just focused entirely on what was going on there yeah no i agree with that so with that said uh i don't have anything else really than five points if you want to close this out i think we can go ahead and do some choppy chop let's chop it up Alrighty, Travis. This week we had some interesting chaps. So you got family friendly, which, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, when I saw it come up, I was like, God, I would hate to have to. Like, that might honestly be the worst genre to have to turn this into. Um, it was a struggle, Brett. I will say this. I got Oscar bait, and I was, I was honestly super close, Travis, to throwing it back in and pulling a new one because... Hey, we I can already, do that? <laughs> well, this is my reasoning. All right, hear me out. Because I thought, honestly, I think this you could have turned this into a comedy easier, or it would have been made more sense to turn this into an actual like comedy, laugh out loud comedy than what because I think it's actually did win some Oscars or at least some awards. So I was like, this movie was already kind of an Oscar bait movie. I think just in doing the we it was kind of mislabeled as a comedy. So I was like, you know what? But I was like, fuck it, I'm gonna stick to it. I did. I did do something a little different this week um, than my usual because I, I decided to go with the I stuck with the Oscar bait, but I decided to do something a little different. So with that, I've given you a little tease. Do you want me to go first or do you want to give us your family friendly first? Um, full disclosure to you and the audience, mine is shitty and bare bones this week. So and, and that's not me pulling a Brett Mosher and sandbagging. It truly is very weak. So. Whatever you think, I'll let you be Robert Altman and, and direct this this picture 
do you want to lead with strength or lead with the weakness? Um, let's go with yours and not because I'm saying strength or weakness, but because it is the, I think it'll follow the traditional format. Mine's not, I don't think it's so far off, but I'll tell you this. Instead of doing my traditional, how I like to, to write a, a chop shop, I tried to write mine very brief and quickly the way they pitched movies in this movie. So um, it, mine's not nearly as long as, as mine normally are, or as well thought out, but I tried to do basically like the elevator pitch that they were giving to Griffin, and that's how I, I framed my chop shop this week. So I will go second. I'll let you go first just because I think you'll probably stick to our, our, our typical format. Well, let me ask you a question. When you start yours, am mm -hmm. I allowed to interrupt you and just be like, but it's got heart, right? Yeah, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So all it's right. a thrill. So it's a heart. It's a heartfelt movie with a thriller. Yes. Political it thriller. Yeah, it's a funny. So it's a funny political thriller with heart. <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah, I did too. I was like, oh, I ought, Travis, if I'm completely honest, I thought that's how you were going to write the opening intro. I thought it was going to go into some kind of pitch like that where you, if we did that kind of a back and forth. I absolutely thought about it. It was on the table. Um, but yeah, okay. So I got family friendly. Um, is it animated? I'm going to start off with that. Is it an animated? Is it CG? Are we doing live action? Because I feel like that's going to get, get me into the position of where I need to be for this family-friendly movie. No, no. We're, we're live action, and it's you'll know by the end why I had to keep it live action. Okay, got it. Uh, um, as I am wont to do sometimes, I'm choosing to kind of give a little bit of color to a secondary character in the movie to kind of let you know what's going on in their life preceding the movie and during the movie and perhaps after the movie. So I wanted to focus on Larry Levy. Do you remember Larry Levy? I do. Sandy okay. Cohen. Sandy Cohen. <laughs> I mean, who's so, that? I don't know anything about that series at all. I don't. What was that we were bringing up? The OC. What? You know, I'm on my third rewatch currently. Uh, <laughs> that Oliver anyways, arc is just so long. Why did? They, why is it so God long? Damn. <laughs> uh, keep keep fucking around, Brett, and I'm going to request a special OC uh, retrospective on the whole series. <laughs> oh, I love the face turn for Luke. Turned into such a lovable guy. And it, I digress. Oh. So I think halfway through this, you're gonna you're gonna realize where I'm going, Brad. So feel free to step in. Okay. Um, our story's gonna follow Larry Levy, um, who is actually working as an attorney on retainer for Fox. He's not actually a member of the studio. Much like uh, we didn't talk about him in the recap, Fred Ward is the uh, studio security guy. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed him. I, I liked him, him a lot too. Yeah. Um, so Larry's gonna instead of security, he's providing legal advice when it's needed. Um, and Larry's going to be meeting with a studio executive concerning some legal matters. And the exec happens to be reading a, a article on the launch of the Hubble telescope, uh, which will put us in 1991, uh, for you history buffs out there. Okay. Um, and the exec just is like, why, why do people who gives a shit about a gigantic waste of money being shot into space and Larry, much like in the film, instantly just has this hey here's the quick 30 second pitch on why people care about the hubble telescope and you know here's the movie we could make around it and the 
studio exec is like stunned. He's like, wow, you you really got a talent for this. You know, why don't you work part time for us? You know, be be a script doctor. Look at some of our scripts with us. So Larry's excited about doing that. And his family at home is excited. Uh, You know, being a lawyer, he keeps long hours. He's often away from the family. Um, And Larry's going to be so successful that he's just going to quit his job as a lawyer altogether to accept the new position. Uh, And again, his wife, very excited. He has an eight-year-old son at home. Very excited about the prospect of, you know, being able to go behind the scenes of of Hollywood movies that he's watched, you know, in his eight years of life to this point. So that's where we'll get into the positive, you know, family elements, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Larry being able to introduce his family to this whole new world, the family kind of getting swept up in the glitz and glamour. And, you know, at first, Larry's the hero of the family for this. But as time goes on, you know. The, the extra time that Larry had because he wasn't being a lawyer, now he's full-time at the studio and it's it's taking him away from home just as much, if not more, uh, than when he was a lawyer. So his wife kind of starts to get a little burnt out on the Hollywood treadmill. Um, you know, she we're going to have the scene where she kind of confronts him to tell him that he's he's changing. And we're going to point specifically to the line dropped in this movie where, you know, Larry's attending AA meetings, but he's not an alcoholic. And his wife's just pointing out how despicable that is. You know, you're taking advantage of other people's illnesses, uh, you know, to pitch movies and to sign actors and directors. And uh, his son, his nameless son to this point, uh, again, he's going to get a little burnt out. Maybe he's on a movie set and kind of sees one of his childhood idols, you know, maybe doing a line of coke, fucking a hooker or something. (laughs) That kind of shatters his images of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, The turning point is going to be right after the end of this this film. Larry is going to find out about the murder that Griffin has committed and kind of the the powers that be helping him cover that up. And it's finally going to dawn on Larry, just like it's dawned on his family already, that that. Hollywood is is not all it's cracked up to be, you know, behind the glitz and glamour is just a really ugly world. And now he sees, hey, the justice system is is anything but just. And he decides Hollywood's not for him. He wants to right the wrongs of this world, much to the appreciation of his family. They feel like he's getting back to be the old Larry. Mm-hmm. So Larry's going to return to being a lawyer, but this time it's going to be a private practice uh, that offers free counsel and and uh, pro bono work to underserved individuals. But you see, he's concerned about the reputation he built in Hollywood. People hear Larry Levy and they're like, oh, that's that snake from Fox. You know, he attended AA meetings uh, under false Mm -hmm. pretenses. He's just an all around bad guy. So he's concerned, concerned enough that he's going to go ahead and change his name. (laughs) And uh, him and his son, Seth, they start brainstorming some uh, some names, some last names. And they decide on Cohen. <laughs> and uh, we're going to end this family-friendly movie with a, a little road trip. They're going to head a little bit. Wait, I, I'm not familiar with California. This might be north or south. They're going to head somewhere, not too far from Hollywood, to start their new lives, led by the patriarch. Sandy Cohen, and as they pull in to the iconic OC house, credits will roll, and all we'll hear is 
California, here we come. Even though they've already been in California. Uh, so yeah. Uh, I heard family friendly. I saw Peter Gallagher. It was the safest bet in the world that I was going to try to tie this into the OC. So uh, good job of sniffing me out before I even began the script, Brett. Well done. I was like, I tried to keep a poker face. I was like, this son of a bitch. I apologize. I feel like bad about stealing your punchline now. But, uh, you know, great minds think alike. That's all I can That's- say. That's right. And, uh, you know, you threw in an Oliver mention, so I know you're a true fan. So. <laughs> so, yeah, that's mine this week. Uh, if you ever wanted a prequel to the OC, well, now you can watch the player and you, you technically have one. I like I like how you're creating your own cinematic universe of <laughs> like completely disjointed. Like that's your chop shops is actually chopping up different <laughs> IPs together. It's the metaverse, Brett. Everything's connected. The Santanaverse. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Santanaverse. Uh, but yes, without further ado, I'm excited to hear yours. Uh, much like you said in, in the, the parlance of this movie. <laughs> All right. All right. I got to I'm going to clear my throat. All right. I'm going to get into try and get into character here. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> All right, take a little drink of water here. I want it to be authentic, right? All right. All right. Now, what brand of water was that? Uh, Pellegrino. Okay, good, good. Yeah. All right, Travis. So he's a studio exec and he's fighting for his life. He's been in the business for a while, but there's some new grifter that comes in and he's threatening his livelihood, right? You know, beyond that, he starts getting these really ominous messages and death threats from some nobody that, that thinks that he's been wronged, right? So now all this pressure starts to come down on the exec, right? Despite being kind of an asshole, he, he's never been threatened like this before. So the exec, he's going to start to unravel, right? He, he's just, he's got too much on his plate. So he decides to, to, to do some amateur uh, investigating and, and he's pretty sure he knows who this culprit is, right? Who's sending him these postcards. Our exec, he's a lover. He's not a fighter. So he goes to see our would-be killer to cut him a deal, to try to get the guy to stop sending him these foreboding postcards, right? 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 So here's the kicker, okay? The guy, the writer, our exec expects to be the, the do-batter, right? He isn't actually the guy, all right? The two get into a little bit of a scuffle, and our exec snaps, and he beats the absolute hell out of the guy, right? Now, it's not some gruesome beatdown. It's a crime of passion, all right? And the exec, he comes to right after and realizes what he's done. And, you know, he, he just sees this guy. He's kind of a bloody pulp, and, and he runs off, right? And he assumes Mr. Ryder, he's alive. Boom. That's the end of our first act, all right? We've now established the world we live in and the conflict that's about to come down on Mr. Exec, right? Our next act is all about the exec wrestling with his conscience. Because, again, the guy's a bit of an ass, but he's not a monster yet, right? He gets to the studio the next day, and while he's listening to the board meeting, he notices a headline about a missing writer. Our exec now thinks he's accidentally killed the guy. And while dealing with the guilt, he starts to have a relationship with none other than the dead writer's girlfriend. All right? Now, this isn't something he wanted, right? Oh, 
Oh, and I forgot to mention, he's actually already in an open relationship with a woman that he works with at the studio with him, all right? Again, it's getting complicated for Mr. Executive. The waters continue to get murky, and the audience really has to start to decide if they're going to root for this guy or not, right? Because he's starting to... He's starting to maybe play around with the girlfriend of the dead guy while at the same time he's in a committed relationship. Not to mention, at this point, we think he's murdered somebody. But he's so charming, Travis. He's so charming. He's so charming. While he's finding comfort with the dead writer's woman, studio security and the police start to close in on him as a suspect of the murder of the writer. Oh, and I almost forgot the postcards and the grifter are still constantly circling him as well, right? This stuff hasn't disappeared. The exec is really in over his head, but he's also falling in love with the writer's widow. Do we call her a widow? I mean, they weren't married. Anyway, all right, the exec is falling for her, all right? She's falling for him, but they're taking it slow. Or slow as two consenting adults can, right? You know, there's going to be some sex. You got to have some sex. You got to have some nudity in this movie. But only shot from the neck up. Yes, right. Well, Tasteful. it depends on how the actress feels. We're going to ask her for full nudity. If she denies it, we'll just we'll play it off as passionate, right? All right. We can talk about that in the contracts later, all right? Now, the two grow closer, like I love you close. And while they're on the run, Mr. Exec gets a call. Like, they're, they're going to go, they're going to find themselves in maybe some kind of you know, isolated hotel in the desert. They're on the run. At least Mr. Exec is. The girl doesn't know. Mr. Exec, he gets a call from the police, and they're looking for him. They need him to come into the station. He complies. But while he's in the lineup, the eyewitness says, these are all men. I thought I told you I saw a woman. Now, the writer's widow... Again, that term again, I, I don't know what, the, what we call her, but the girlfriend, right, is sitting in the other room and she panics. She thinks they're about to lock up Mr. Exec, so she confesses. She says she went looking for the writer when he didn't come home. But when she found him, he'd already been beaten up. And while she was trying to console him and get him back home, the two had a fight and she accidentally pushed him down the stairs and she thought she killed him, so she fled. All right? This is a bombshell reveal. Now we're going to skip ahead eight months. The girl, yeah? Where, where did she flee to? Just back to her home. She just she oh, left okay. the scene. So she, she just like, left the scene. Gotcha. Yeah, she's left gotcha. the scene. Okay. Right, okay. Skip ahead eight months. The girl, she's on death row. She's getting gassed for killing the writer. Mr. Exec is crushed. He loved her. So he's getting into his car. To go to the execution, because he has to say his final goodbye, when he sees someone putting something in the windshield wiper of his car. He distracts the person just long enough for them to turn around, and he realizes it's the writer. He's not dead. He faked his death. And he was the one putting the postcard on the car. Mr. Exec knocks the guy out. He throws him in the car and speeds to the prison to absolve his girlfriend. He's running in. He's got the writer over his shoulder, Right? But he's too late. He comes in just in time to see the girlfriend take her last breath. She's dead. He's holding the writer. He falls to his knees crying. End of the movie. All right. Not a dry eye in the house. Not a dry eye in the house, man. <laughs> oh. I, I should have seen it coming. I should have seen the merger of the two movies. But here's the thing. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. 
who should we have play the exact? I'm thinking Bruce Willis. I don't know about ah, you. Maybe Kevin Costner. Maybe, maybe we'll see. We'll see. And and for the girlfriend, Julie Roberts. Yeah, no, I think that's a slam dunk. It's got to be Julia. That's just yeah. a pretty woman. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, maybe the writer can be like a George Clooney or a Brad Pitt. I don't know. Now, but the, this is throughout. It's, it sounds kind of dark. There is going to be some heart in the middle in the second Absolutely. act, right? Yeah, no, there's going to be a lot of heart. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're going to have some heart. A lot of intrigue. You know. A lot of intrigue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a th- somebody has to die, die. It's a thriller, right? You know, it's a thriller. Yeah. With heart. A thriller with, with heart. heart. It's a thriller with heart. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Yep. <laughs> You know, I, I didn't want to interrupt you in the middle, and we didn't really get a chance to comment on her very much. But what did you think of June? Like, not the performance, but the character as portrayed. Did you like her? Did you dislike her? Were you indifferent? Because I have a little bit of a theory about her. I am pretty indifferent. I think, you know, if she was a real person, I think she'd be a lot of fun to be around. Um, at the same time, I think she'd be somebody who would infuriate me because there's just no, like, you know, she's what was it the an something anarchist is how he defined her, but it was it was weird. You know they the the writer uh, sets her they sets her up like oh you both would 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 love each other or something like that. I'm like they're both I don't know they're they're weird. Um, I don't know I I was indifferent to her. That's we'll we'll say that that's my final answer. I kind of viewed her as a little bit of a, a parasite, a, bu- a little bit of a Hollywood climber. She claims to be this artist that, you know, I don't ever finish anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I do it for my own pleasure. But, you know, her boyfriend's body is not even cold yet. And she's already getting swept up in this Hollywood romance and, and going to fancy parties and going to spas. It feels like the subtext to her is that she is somebody trying to further her career. I feel like she got involved with the writer thinking that he might be somebody who blows up in Hollywood. And she realizes later that he's kind of a talentless go nowhere hack. And then when he dies and she's presented with, oh, look at this. This guy's already several rungs up the Hollywood ladder. She like instantly falls in love with him. So I don't know if that's what they were going for, but I found her to be very unlikable. I, I feel like she was supposed to be the yin and yang because um, I think in a lot of shots, uh, Griffin is wearing black. If like at the very end, it's most apparent because he's wearing like almost all black and she's wearing, I think, almost all white. And I think it's supposed to almost be like a yin and yang thing where at the end of the day, she represents just the unbridled artist personality like they won't finish anything if you don't make them finish anything but if you don't have like so the exec it's kind of a a mutual relationship the exec needs them to create the artwork for them to make the money off of but if you don't have the exec forcing the artist to finish the work they never will like they basically it is that kind of symbiotic relationship they have to have each other in order to be successful Ooh, see look at that you did have thoughts there uh yeah i didn't I noticed the black and white thing. I looked at it as more of a morality, which is why I was like, she's no more moral than Griffin is or or barely is. But your interpretation makes perfect sense. The artist and, you know, the commercial side of art where, yeah, you've got a deadline. We need to get this shit out. Uh, So, yeah, I'm glad I brought it up because that's a terrific insight. Mm -hmm. Real quick, just one thing I do want to bring up. Vince, a young Vincent D'Onofrio. Holy shit. (laughs) 
like, so I watched this with Kate, and at a certain point, I was like, can you tell me who that, because we've been watching a lot of Marvel, I was like, can you tell me who that person is right there? And she goes, no, I have no idea. I'm like, that's Kingpin from Daredevil and Hawkeye. She goes, oh, shit. She goes, I see it now. I would have never picked them. Like, it's crazy to see a young version of him. Like, I don't know. He looks exactly what I would expect, and at the same time, not what I would have pictured at all for a young Vincent D'Onofrio. Well, yeah, and he's a bit of a chameleon because I know you've seen earlier work than this because you've mm-hmm. seen Full Metal Jacket. But again, he is playing body type, personality, a completely different person. So, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I was thrilled when he popped up. Yep. Uh, but yeah, I think that'll do it for Chop Shop. I, uh, I, do, <laughs> I do love when we do just ridiculous. <laughs> like where both of those went was fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I was a big fan of yours. Um, so let's go ahead and do blue book. So this one's going to be interesting because I do not have gross us and gross worldwide is the same number, but I'm going to give it to you. So the sticker price of this movie was an estimated $8 million. I will tell you this. I believe I read somewhere that it made its money back in the first few months of its opening in theaters. So I'll give you that as a little hint. How much money do you think this movie made? I'm going to say 27 million. Ooh, close. Uh, 21 million. Uh, we'll say 21.5 million. Okay. Yep. So I definitely would say this was a success. I will say it is interesting watch going back and watching early 90s movies, uh, mainly because early 90s fashion was fucking dog shit. God. Um, it was Everything was men's fashion, women's fashion. Everything was terrible in the early 90s. Aside from maybe grunge. Grunge made it through, but like the fucking baggy, low button suit that all the guys were wearing. Double breasted. Double breasted. I'm like, these are terrible. I'm like, I hope to God this never comes back. Yeah. And I mean, you're absolutely looking at you know, Hollywood. So they would have been on the cutting edge of fashion. This is not mm-hmm. like this is set in Des Moines, Iowa. Like this was high fashion and this is what people thought looked good. Yep. All right. Yeah. So let's do some tag and title. I do have a couple alternate titles for you this week. All right. They are translations. None of them are all American alternate titles. So uh, all of them are from, I believe, Spanish speaking countries. So uh, in Peru, this movie was titled The Rules of the Game. In Spain, it was called The Hollywood Game. And in Chile, maybe my favorite title, it was called The Big Fish. They at least all fit, you know, unlike uh, the the producers, you know, springtime (laughs) for Hollywood. (laughs) Oh, boy. That just needs to be everything we ever do. We just need to make the producer's version of whatever it is. I mean, you Uh, are listening to springtime for Hollywood Chop Shop right now. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right. So let's go ahead and get into our favorite part. Taglines. So, Travis, I'm going to give you... Well, it was gonna. I was gonna throw you for a loop and throw, give you four taglines, but you already got one of them, so there's no point in doing. It. I was going to give you an alternate tagline that was suspense, laughter, violence, hope, heart, nudity, sex, happy endings, mainly <laughs> happy endings, but apparently you also gravitated towards that line, so there's no point in telling you. 
So I'm glad that wasn't the one I landed on. Um, so I'm going to give you three titles like we always do. One is going to be an actual tagline. Sorry, not titles. Tagline for this movie. One will be a tagline for a movie I find adjacent. And one is a tagline I created myself. Travis, I need you to tell me what the tagline for 1992's The Player is. Are you ready for the options? Hit me. All right. Now more than ever, a bad week in a tough town, and life can be a real pitch sometimes. Um, now more than ever is the tagline for this movie, I believe, because it's literally a line of dialogue in the movie. It's the the campaign that Griffin is working on. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the last one? Life's a pitch. Life can be a real pitch sometimes. I think that's the one you made up. Okay. And then uh, what was the other one? A tough week. Give it to me again. The middle one. A bad week in a tough town. I've got, I think that's a real movie and I've got two guesses. Okay. So this, this might be cheating. I think it's either Chinatown or Sunset Boulevard. It is not either of those. Damn. It is a movie. It is a movie that I am pretty sure if I remember correctly, you love as much as I do though. It is set in Hollywood. It might've been a comeback film for a certain actor. Do those clues give you any, any insight as to who it might be? Uh, was it one of the options that the listeners voted on? It was not. Ah, then I got nothing. Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Fuck. God <laughs> damn it. I fucking love that movie. Yeah. Uh, because it has, I believe he's a producer. And it's an actress who kills herself, but like it's a, it's a film noir based in Hollywood. So, yeah, damn, I can't. I'm kicking myself for that. Uh, some of the other taglines for this movie were: "Everything you've heard is true." In Hollywood, it's not who you know; it's who you kill. The best movie ever made, Griffin Mill, which was probably my favorite of the taglines. The tagline is literally the best movie ever made in quotations, and then. As oh, written by Griffin as Mill. A quote. Yeah, that's it's a, beautiful. It's a quote. Best that's movie ever made. Beautiful. Griffin Mill. And then making movies can be murder. Oh no, those are. I think that might be my favorite batch of taglines. Like I, agree. I don't think there was a bad tagline in there. Yep, I agree. It was definitely the 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 best ones that I I've seen in a long time. So, I uh, yeah, again, the best movie ever made. Griffin Mill. <laughs> that's one of those that i feel like is on an like a a, a late poster because like if you haven't seen the movie you don't necessarily get that but it is fantastic to me so all right yeah, i might look for that poster and see if there's an alternate <laughs> poster with that on there because i would love to add that to my wall <laughs> yeah. so with that i think we can we have two segments left we have time capsule and then we'll close us out. So, Mr. Santana, hit us with your time capsule. It's a pretty brief one, but I think it's just so perfect for this movie and its message. Um, so this movie stars Tim Robbins. Um, uh, are you familiar with who his wife is? Yes. 
say her name, Brett. Susan Sarandon. Ooh, I'm impressed. Um, <laughs> you thought, did you you thought know- I was just doing that bullshit where I agree. <laughs> Well, I thought you probably knew who it was, but you would butcher her name because <laughs> you can sometimes do that. But no, you nailed it. Um, so Tim Robbins actually, I don't know if you noticed Susan Sarandon was in habeas corpus at the end. She was witnessing the execution. I don't Did remember seeing her? her face, but I remember seeing her name in the credits. So, yeah, she was there. That's where she popped up. Kind of blink and you miss her. But uh, a few years after this movie, I believe three years Tim Robbins actually directed his wife in a film. Do you know what that film is? No. What was it? God, I, w- I, I love the face you made there. That, that was pure <laughs> frustration. It was a movie uh, starring Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn called Dead Man Walking, which is about Susan Sarandon playing a nun who is trying to give some sort of like faith-based counsel to a inmate on death row played by Sean Penn. And spoilers, by the end of the film, he is executed in a gas chamber. Hmm. Uh, Susan Sarandon won an Oscar for that. Uh, her <laughs> husband was nominated for Best Director, as was Sean Penn for Best Actor. So uh, the ridiculousness of the end of this movie with that plot, if you just remove the Bruce Willis bursting in with a shotgun, <laughs> truly, yeah, if you make a death row movie, good chance it's some Oscar bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I just thought that was incredible. And it made me wonder if Tim Robbins or Susan Sarandon ever had that conversation before they agreed to make the movie. Like, hey, this is kind of like Hybeus Corpus. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, just Hollywood eating its own tail by making fun of that movie. And then three years later, nominating it for several Oscars. Jesus Christ. So I will tell you this. I don't mean to hijack your segment. All right. I don't. But I thought you were going to talk about Robert Altman and some of his past work. And I just want to do a shout out to a movie that most people hate that I love. And that's O.C. and Stiggs. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's an old movie. Um, it was based off of, I think, a National Lampoon, like, one story about two kids living in suburban America. And basically their war on upper, like, the upper middle class it's a fantastic just anti-establishment. Like the the way the movie goes down is that the studio execs wanted Altman to make basically like another Porky's type movie. And he hated that genre of movie. So he decided he wanted to make a parody of that. And a lot of people like the biggest complaint is like it doesn't land very well. I f- love it. I think it's fantastic. But it is to me. I love that movie the same way I love punk rock and most people don't like punk rock. Like <laughs> it's like, it's that to me, it's, that's the easiest way. It's like, if you kind of like that kind of that, <laughs> that style of making fun of, or like just kind of anti-establishment, like it's a fantastic movie. It also has one of the best vehicles of all movies called the Gila monster. You've probably never heard of it or seen it, but basically at the beginning of the movie, <laughs> their whole objective is to make, the noisiest, least gas efficient, like just beast of a vehicle that is just obnoxious for other people to have to look at. Again, they might be role models of mine. I'm just going to say, throw that out there. If you've got a chance to go watch OC and Stiggs, go ahead, go ahead and do it. It's it's an earlier, people want to say it's one of his worst movies. I disagree. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Brett, unless it ends up in a trilogy, I will not be watching. Oh no! I film. assume you will not be watching it unless it ends up in a trilogy. So, 
which just means I'm writing a new trilogy soon. <laughs> uh, already, final thoughts. Uh, it's pretty clear I loved the movie. I, I think we both loved it. I may have loved it even more than you. I can say, though, this movie... I won't say that obviously it was made with us in mind, but we are absolutely at the top of the list of people who would be prone to love this movie. So if you're somebody who just, you know, doesn't keep up with movie news, you see a couple movies in the theaters, you don't keep up with the behind the scenes, who's being cast in this and, you know, uh, Vin Diesel hates The Rock, The Rock hates Vin Diesel. If you're not into that level of Hollywood examination, this might feel like a lesser movie to you. Uh, in fact, I mean, you may find it a little bit boring, mm -hmm. I, I would say, uh, especially if you don't recognize a lot of the celeb cameos. Uh, so, yeah, you you have to be of a particular audience. But if you are, I can't recommend this movie highly enough. If you have a passing knowledge of how Hollywood works or hell, even if you don't, but you're just very frustrated by the direction that Hollywood has taken, <laughs> this will kind of pull back the curtain and, and give you the, the the details as to why it's gone that way. So. Very high recommend for almost anybody. Yeah. The worst part of this of knowing that is that this was made in 92 and nothing changed. It just could like it, it continued the it collision course. Yeah. Just like, yeah. oh, shit. We knew this was happening in 92 and did nothing. We did nothing about it. Like, OK, so uh, I agree. I definitely think if you are into cinema just in general, uh, it's definitely worth with worth watching i don't think there's a it is considered a, i guess a dark comedy i don't find a lot of laugh out loud moments but there are a lot of like clever or travis as you said like smiling moments like i definitely had that that shit eating grin a large portion of the movie or again pointing out like oh my god that's who look who that look who that is you know I, to the point where it's almost funny it's like if you were a passerby walking down the hollywood boulevard and you saw celebrities that's how you would do it like oh my god travis look look who it is look who that's look it's susan sarandon did you see her she just walked into that store like it's this it's weird how the, the movie almost plays into that aspect but uh yeah i definitely recommend watching it i don't know if it's a movie that i will own just because i have a very i mean i i'm not saying my blu-ray collection is prestigious but it is i just don't have that many um blu-rays but i could see me picking it up possibly if if i came across it i don't know if i'd actively go out and seek it but if i walked by a bin or a shelf and it was sitting there i could see it being an impulse buy yeah, and I also would want to see, because it's ripe to have some special features. So I hope I can find an edition that has a lot of behind the scenes stuff, because I don't know if you saw, there were so many cameos that were mm -hmm. cut from the movie. Patrick yep. Swayze was cut. Jeff Daniels was cut. Um, so it'd be interesting to kind of maybe get some deleted scenes, uh, maybe get a commentary. So if, if I could find one with extras, it's, a, it's an instant purchase for me. Hmm. It was a two hour movie that didn't feel like two hours. Which is good. Yeah, and, and you you get that sense that this is going to be a, a keep keep you on your toes, keep moving kind of movie as soon as it opens, which we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Well, next week we'll keep you uh, uh, in suspense as to what we do next week. And not because we haven't decided between a couple different trilogies, but because we want you to be surprised. Uh, but we will be back next week with a brand new, well, I guess we have a wrap-up show. Maybe we'll tell you what it is in the wrap-up. Um, but we'll see you next week for a brand new trilogy. Thank you all, and uh, hope you have a great rest of your week.
Yeah, that was a great movie, huh? It's so refreshing to see something like this after all these, you know, cop movies, you know, things we do. Maybe we'll do a remake of this. All right, good deal. All right, uh, all right. you want to count it down? Okay. One, two, three. Okay, we'll do that one more time. Any... Oh, yeah. So, it they're tiny, but I have to be really close. Well, I, I got a few ideas for the Hollywood Chop Shop commercial, and, uh, you know, I feel like we need to go for a more upbeat... It, wait. What happened? Oh, yeah, no, never mind. I, this was not... Okay, all right, you okay. ready? Yep. One... One. Two, two, three, three.